Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 235. This episode was recorded at the Eastern Shore Food Lab in Chestertown, Maryland. And my guest on today's episode is Dr. Bill Schindler. Bill wears many hats. He's a professor, an author, an anthropologist, an archaeologist, world traveler, a cook, And he looks at how we can incorporate ancestral foodways and techniques into the modern times. In short, I guess you could say he is an anthropologist focusing on food and cooking techniques. He's been all around the world learning about the best ways that we can cook and eat to be happy and healthy. So his travels and his studies have taken him to Iceland, to Kenya, South Africa, Thailand, Ireland. I felt like I could have talked to him for 10 straight hours and probably still had a lot more information that we could have covered. So this was a real treat to get to learn from him today. If you go to the show notes for this episode, you will find out all about the the different things that he has his hands in from the Eastern Shore Food Lab to the modern Stone Age family, to his book that's coming out, to his daughter's sourdough company, Rise. So many really cool things. So please go check that stuff out. Just click on any of the hyperlinks and they'll bring you straight there. I also have a link to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. And you know what that is. That's a monthly service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks like stickers and zines and things like that. And from time to time, I will throw cool kickbacks to my Patreon supporters that my guests have produced. So a lucky Patreon supporter will be getting Bill's book once that comes out. This was a real honor and treat, so I hope you enjoyed this one. Without further ado, here is Dr. Bill Schindler. Well, first of all, I'll say thank you. I get to go to many, many cool places. I feel sometimes like a dream. Um, and this is something very cool. It smells amazing in here. Uh, so thanks for having me here, Bill. It's my pleasure. Thanks for being here. I also like, as I was emailing you back and forth, I'm calling you Bill, and I'm like, is this disrespectful? I'm talking to a doctor right now. Bill's perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, before we even get into your story, why don't we maybe tell people the setting we're in and, and let people know what the Eastern Shore Food Lab is. Okay, uh, great. So the building that you're in now is called the Eastern Shore Food Lab. Um, up until recently, it was affiliated with Washington College, and now it's turning into its own nonprofit that'll stand alone. And we can talk, as we as I have this discussion, we can talk a little bit more about w- the work that it does mm-hmm. and what, it's, um, what it will be doing. But on, on top of that, uh, this is also home to Rise and the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. So Rise is a sourdough bread uh, company that my daughter started at the beginning of COVID that has just taken off. And uh, the Modern Stone Age Kitchen is all the other food productions and classes and workshops and meals that we offer here as well. 
That's amazing. And you've had like pop-ups here and stuff with different yeah, chefs? Tons, tons of pop-ups. So we, we bring chefs and uh, visionaries in, in the culinary world from, from around the world here. We've had people from Mexico. We've had people from Kenya. We've had people from Italy uh, here to do presentations and, and workshops. And sometimes we, we base meals around it as well. Uh, recently, we, we do also do pop-up meals that are designed. You know, food is such a great vehicle to connect people with History, prehistory, science, biology, health, all sorts of things, right? So I love, I love to nourish people biologically, but mm. I love to use food to also nourish people in, in, in all the other ways that food can, can do that. So when we do, it takes a lot to turn this place over from a production facility to a place where people can sit down and dine and have a meal. So when we do it, we make sure it's worth every second of it. And we do these sort of themed meals. Like what recent one we did, uh, Brian Sanders, who's putting out a documentary called Food Lies, was here. He, he came here to interview me. We brought up a woman named Dr. Kate Shanahan from Florida, a woman named Dr. Priana, Brianna Pobener from the Smithsonian. And he was interviewing all of us for this documentary anyhow. And we said, yeah, if we're going to get all these people together, let's have this awesome meal. So we did a themed meal here, six courses, Journey Through Time. We started at two and a half million years ago and ended in the future, actually. And every course oh, was cool. a different time period. And we were restricted to using only the types of ingredients and the types of cooking methods from those time periods to convey to the diners um, a whole bunch of different information, but really to connect them with the sort of the ser shared ancestral dietary past. And it was out of control. Was uh, that's amazing. And I will unpack some of that some of that soon. Sure. Um, so you do a lot. You are a professor. You are trained in anthropology and archaeology. You're a businessman. Sounds like you're a chef, a traveler. When you are, you know, at a party or a dinner event and someone meets you and is like, oh, hey, Bill, what do you do? How do you answer that? It, it, it depends on what month it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Seriously. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never, I've never been... We, my wife and I have had some business coaching, and the one thing they say to us all the time is, you know, you need the elevator speech. And, I, and, I, and I've never been able to nail it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in fact, I, I, just, um, I just published a book. It'll be out November 16th called Eat Like a Human. And I thought that was finally my opportunity to, you know, just sort of throw up all over the pages and, and not be, you know, restricted to certain word counts or whatever and just tell all the stuff that I wanted to tell. And... It turns out I had to cut that down too. I couldn't even yeah. do that very easily. So, you know, I interviewed a guy named Pete Evans. You know who that is in Australia? I don't think so. He's, um, he's a, a chef, celebrity chef. He's got several television shows. He's had like 20 books. Okay. Um, and I started to do an introduction to him at the beginning of the, of the interview. We were, it was over Zoom. And he stopped me. He's like, stop. And I said, well, he's just... I'm just a human. I'm just, I'm just Pete Evans, a human. And I loved it because at first I was taken aback. Like, don't interrupt me. But, and then I was like, you know what? I get it. I am somebody who has had a very unhealthy relationship with food my entire life up until recent times and have spent a large part of my time trying to figure out how to nourish my own body. And then when I started having children and responsible for a family, um, and also a professor and a teacher and responsible for, not responsible for, but I, I, I do owe things to my students that, you know, that I wanted to find ways to nourish them and now as a part of this community, nourish the community as much as possible. I found out my, my calling and what I am, am, really have to offer is a unique perspective on 
how to nourish your body, nourish your community, and be connected with the world around you. And mm. in order to do that, unfortunately, I don't fit into a box very easily. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not just an archaeologist. I'm not just a chef. It's pieces of all these things together that give me this unique perspective. Are you from this area originally? No. Well, that's a great question. I'm from New Jersey. My wife and oh. I are both from New Jersey. We've been here almost 14 years. But it turns out I just found out that I have relatives that are buried in Churchill Cemetery from, um, from almost 500 years ago. And you said that's about seven miles from here? Yes, yeah, seven miles from here. We completely, completely, there's uh, nothing. The only reason I came here at all 14 years ago was um, because of the job at the college. So it was pretty cool to find that out. Yeah, that's wild. So was there something in your upbringing or as you were growing up that set you down the path of like anthropology or even at that time understanding like ancient or ancestral food sources and cooking and things like that? It was actually two things happening at the same time my whole life. One was my father just loved to be outside. Uh, he had me hunting and fishing and trapping all the time. We were always looking for arrowheads to this day. Mm. He and I have never found one. I found tons of stuff, you know, as, as an archaeologist. But walking fields, we had no idea what we were looking for. We just knew there was this kind of, we wanted to find an arrowhead. Never found one. Um, but he had me outside all the time. He loved the past. We used to read, and I know this may sound, well, it doesn't sound silly. It's fantastic. We used to read uh, biographies of the mountain men, you know, the four oh, yeah, travelers yeah. in the 1800s. Like, that was our thing. When I was in seventh, eighth grade, um, we, we, Jim Bridger, Hugh Glass, all that, um, th those people, Davy Crockett, you know. Um, well, not Davy Crockett, but anyhow. Uh, so I had this love for the past, this love for the outdoors over here happening on one side. And on the other side, my mom had me in the kitchen all the time, and I was still, I was trying, I was diet after diet after diet, trying to get in shape. And I never realized, you know, I always thought these were like two different parts of my life. And it wasn't until about 20, 25 years ago that they connected and I realized that my work as an archaeologist and anthropologist and my desire and drive to try to figure out human nutrition and diet and all those sorts of things actually connected in very unique and powerful ways. So what is it, and maybe this is a bigger topic, but what was it about your previous diet that you think was or you know was unhealthy and, and not fit for you? Well, none of them worked, <laughs> which is one reason I know it didn't work. Um, they all, well, here's the thing. I, 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 this hit me as one of those light bulb moments several months ago. I was actually in the middle of a podcast and it hit me and laid it out. I don't know how well it was received, but I'll, I'll, I'll use you as another guinea pig okay, here. Cool. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's three things that all organisms have to do to survive. One is to reproduce. And two is that offspring has to be viable and they have to live long enough to produce new life and you have to stay safe. So in other words, you have to successfully have sex, you have to protect yourself, right? And you have to nourish yourself and nourish your babies and, and all those sorts of things. And, and if one of those things breaks down, you die and, 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 and you don't produce viable offspring. Right? Essentially, your species becomes extinct. So through evolutionary processes, that means millions and millions and millions of years of, of external triggers that are, that are impacting your gene, your gene pool, um, our species have figured it out. The species that, have, that are around now have figured it out, um, and that's why they're still around. And it makes complete sense that the things in our life that um, are the most sensual, in other words, all of your senses 
are firing when you're engaged in those acts are there to help you make sure you get these things right. And if you think about it, from um, sex to food to that feeling you have when you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and it's like an out-of-body experience where you're that scared because something crashed in the basement, mm. all your, all, in, in all of those times, all of your senses are heightened and, and you're using all of your senses throughout that experience. And if you do it right, it feels really, really good. And if you do it wrong, well, it feels really, really bad. And it, it, it's not a coincidence that eating food is an entire body experience. It's not a coincidence that having sex is a complete body experience. It's not, it, those, aren't, those aren't coincidences. Those are evolutionary processes. So it doesn't make sense on any level that in order to be healthy, we should be hurting. Like in order to be healthy, we should be going, feeling like we're hungry. In order mm -hmm. to be healthy, we should feel like we're gonna get sick. None of those things make sense. It is entirely possible, and it's actually preferred, you can lose weight and get to a, if you're overweight and you're obese and you wanna lose weight and get to a healthy weight, you can do it without feeling hungry. Like, you don't have to go without. Um, so, if you, if you think about it, all of these diets that you have to work really hard to stay on, they're not, something, something's wrong with it. You may lose weight, you may feel a little bit better, but that doesn't mean it's the ideal diet. The ideal human diet, just like the ideal raccoon diet or the ideal striped bass diet, is one in which nourishes every part of our body. And one thing I like to say is, you know, your goal in life, in, goal in life, your goal in your life as far as food is concerned, mm. should be you sit down and eat, and every single time you get up from the table, you feel better than when you sat down. And I know that sounds like, oh, of course, but how many times is that the case? Most of the time, if people are trying to be healthy, they get up and they're still hungry. Or if they're not that and they're just eating without thinking, they get up and they feel stuffed yeah, and they bloated, have to yeah. throw up <laughs> and they need a Tums or an antacid or something, or they have to open up their belt loop, you know. So first of all, one reason to answer your question more directly, one reason I know that those diets didn't work is because they were so incredibly hard to stay on. They were, they served a purpose, right? They, I might have lost a few pounds on one, Right, but I didn't maintain that, and it was too hard to do. So that's one way I didn't know that it worked. And, and the other is, it, none of it made sense. The more that I learned about our, how, how long humans have been on this planet, and our ancestors have been around, and, the, and what I learned about looking at skeletal material from the archeological record and how healthy, incredibly healthy we were 20,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, compared to today, I didn't understand why we needed something new. We needed a supplement or a, a, a new way of eating or something in a box from the grocery store that was supposed to make us healthy if we were already healthy without those things. And that's where my mind really started spinning and I realized I had to look to the past to answer some of these questions. So would it, what's the historical moment or like the historical transition moment where we left that and came to whatever it is, if it's uh, the source of this being processed food or like a heavy reliance on sugar and grain, like is it the industrialization or? Yeah, the, the, the two, if you look, go back and, and I'm happy to dive into anything deeply that you want to, cool, but cool. to keep it sort of brief to, 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 to sort of answer that question at first, the major milestones in our, in our evolutionary past up until more recent times, up until the past 10,000 years. And to me, as an archeologist, 10,000 years is recent, right? Yeah. On the time scales we're talking about. Um, really started around three and a half million years ago when we first made our, our first stone tool. 
And that's the first time that we were able as humans to um, do things to our food before they went into our mouths, right? All, most animals on the planet rely solely on their biological makeup to, pro to, to get and process food. Humans are completely different. We have out, starting three and a half million years ago, we, we began to out eat our own digestive tract and included foods that we have no business eating and that we can't digest efficiently on our own, but what we do as humans is we process food, and, I, and in this context, I'm using process, food processing in a very positive sense, right. that we process food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible for our bodies before we even eat it. And this started three and a half million years ago. And for millions of years, from the development of stone tool technology to fire, to pots, to fermentation, to all these other sorts of things, these technologies made food safer and more nourishing. When I say more nourishing, I mean more nutrient dense. In other words, it either added nutrients or consolidated those nutrients to make this incredibly power packed food and most importantly, made the food bioavailable. Um, in other words, just because you eat food doesn't mean your body can do something with it. It has to be in the right state and you have to be healthy for you to maximize the nutrient value of those foods. Otherwise, it's just passing through your body. So all these technologies and approaches to food for millions of years made food absolutely incredible and supported the body and brain growth that uh, happened throughout different species, ancestral species up until modern day Homo sapiens appeared 300,000 years ago. This is all very positive. Hmm. Now, it's not to say there was this you know, gorgeous like, you know, panacea that was you know it was absolutely everything was absolutely wonderful but in a, in a food sense it was amazing now we get up until to about 15 somewhere between 15 and 10,000 years ago depending on where you are in the world and the agricultural revolution hits and all of a sudden you know all these incredible advances in our in our food supply and in our diets completely transformed i mean if you think about a a, a hunter gatherer at say 15,000 years ago and I'm generalizing here because we're talking about a whole bunch of uh, variability around the world, but hunter-gatherers about 15,000 years ago, you could imagine were eating hundreds, hundreds of different plants and different plant parts throughout a given year and do at least dozens of different animals. And when they were eating the animals, they were eating the entire thing nose to tail. So the food that they were taking in was incredibly diverse, incredibly rich, and they were using technologies to maximize the nutrient value of this food. Then all of a sudden the agricultural revolution hits, which is completely focused on annual grasses almost everywhere in the world. If it's in Eastern Asia, it's rice. If it's in South America, it's maize. If it's Central South America, if it's in Europe, it's rye and wheat and barley and these sorts of things. So you go from a diet that has hundreds of plants and dozens of animals to a diet that's focused on one annual grass. Uh, to the expense of the others, because farming is so incredibly difficult to do mm. that you don't have time to hunt, you don't have time to forage, and you're trying to fill, you know, you're spending all your time that year creating this storable resource, and it's the mainstay of your diet. Can you feed more people on a agriculturally, you know, annual grain-based agricultural system? Absolutely. Populations rose. And we think that's a positive thing, but everybody was sicker for it. You had more people, but none of those people were ever reaching their, their maximum potential. So that's the first downfall. And the second big one, so we go from that point, we go from hunter-gatherers to food producers. And then the next major change is the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, where we go from food producers to food consumers. And at every stage, you know, from, from going from a hunter-gatherer to uh, an agriculturalist food producer, 
And then from food producers to food consumers, not only does the safety and nutrient value of the food decrease, but we get more and more separated from our food where it comes from. And today, most people have absolutely no idea where their food comes from and don't even know the people that grow or raise the food. That's all fascinating. And tell me if this is correct. And um, you put your thoughts together in a much better way than I can. I'm always the stupidest person in the room because I'm always talking with people who are experts in the thing that they do. But I know I've heard sometimes people say, well, uh, people in the past, be it 10,000 years and beyond, didn't live as long as people today. Um, but I read something once that said, like, that's only true because ch child and infant mortality was high. So it's sort of like when you take that collectively, it makes the lifespan lower. Yeah. yeah. So there's a couple pieces there. Okay. And that is always the question that somebody asks right away because we value longevity, right? We, we, we value how long we're alive and, and we use that as sort of the currency for a conversation like that. We use that to say that's the marker. And if you can't live to 90 years old, then I don't even want to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I would say is I don't like to say people today are living longer. I like to say people today are dying longer, right? There's a big difference between dying and living. And people, if you think about humans as, as an animal like we are, um, one of the things that has happened, and we sort of normalized it, but it's, it's a terrible way to think about it. Um, we have normalized pain. We've normalized suffering. We've nor we, we think that as we get older, it's just normal. We should be in pain and we shouldn't be able to do this and we shouldn't be able to do this. Um, a lot of that, by the way, is diet related. But if you think about other animals, other animals live these, um, not our, and when I say other animals, I am not talking about our domesticated pets or our domesticated food animals. I will lump them together with humans because we're doing the same thing to them as we've done to ourselves. I mean, mm. we're actually giving, we're giving our domesticated animals diabetes and obesity and cancer and all the other things we're giving ourselves because we're feeding them in the wrong way as well. So th don't think about them, think about wild animals. Wild animals, live these amazing lives and keel over dead. I mean, and and that's, that's the way I want to be. I want to live this, no, I want to do it as long as I can, but I want to live this amazing, amazing life and then just not wake up one day. I mean, that's, there's, that's, there's something to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so first of all, I, I want to, I, I, I urge everyone to think about that question about lifespan with, are, are we living longer or are we dying longer, number one. And number two, you're absolutely right. If, if you took an average lifespan of a hunter-gatherer, say 50,000 years ago, and us today, yeah, our, our average lifespan is greater today. And, and I don't wanna say significantly greater, but it is greater. Uh, the huge difference there is in infant mortality. And one of the things that's really unique about humans, we have so many things that are unique about us, but we, we have maxed out the size of our human heads that can fit through a mother's pelvic girdle. Like, in fact, I mean, and we're right at the brink of it being mm. too dangerous, right? We're, we're really walking that line. Human, human birth, giving, you know, female humans giving birth to infant humans is the most dangerous and painful childbirth in the animal world. And it's because we've literally maxed that out. And so we, we've gotten to the point where Okay, that's the biggest head, because we as humans, and we have huge heads, we have huge brains. We've maxed out what can fit through there and not kill too many mothers and not make it that painful. Um, or it is painful, but it, it, it's a maximum that it can be. But on top of that, the other way that we've sort of 
we, it's not intentional, it's the revolutionary process. But the other thing that's happened is that we have taken a lot of the brain growth. We, we want more brain growth to happen uh, as in infancy, but we can't have it happen inside the mother any longer because the heads would be too big. So what we, what, what's happened instead is that we give birth to completely useless babies, completely useless babies. And we've extended the time that that brain can grow outside of the body and use cultural mechanisms like parenting and grandparents involved and caring for these useless babies yeah. until they can fend for themselves. <laughs> and if you've ever seen a horse born, like I, I remember the first time I ever saw a horse born, I saw the horse born, it was like three o'clock in the morning. I'm like, oh, that was really cool, but I'm gonna go back to bed. I'm like, no, 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 you gotta wait. I'm like, wait for what? And they said, if the horse doesn't stand up in like 45 minutes, we gotta call the, if the horse doesn't stand up in like 45 minutes, we gotta call the vet, something's wrong. I'm like, 45 minutes? Like how long does it take for a human child to stand up? So we've, we've, we've given up a lot. Um, we've given up easy pregnancy, I'm sorry, easy birth, less painful birth, and the ability for our young to be born and take care of themselves very quickly to, in order to grow these incredibly huge brains that we as humans, we as humans have. So with that comes high infant mortality. And especially with hunter-gatherer groups where things were rough, things were harder, and there wasn't modern, the modern you know, medical world, a lot of babies died. And a lot of kids died until they were about the age of five or six. So the, the number usually is if you take away the um, you know, first five or six years worth of death, you know, of your life and the, the deaths that would happen during that time period, the light, average lifespan of a hunter-gatherer is actually a lot higher than we mm. think. You know, it, it very well into the high 60s or 70s, which is pretty damn good, especially if you consider that they're living that whole time. That's, that's pretty cool. You mentioned nose-to-tail cooking, and I think there's been a revival in interest in that through people like yourself and through, I guess, sort of like the popularization of um, like the profession of being a chef and through yeah. food media and stuff like that. Um, but it, I was thinking, you know, I, I've, I've been many places and I'll get to some of the ones that you've been to. Um, I, I'll take pho, right? I guess a lot of yeah. people nowadays know what pho is. Uh, the stock is made with bones. Um, very delicious things have often been made by people who are pretty poor and they're things like bones and organ meat and like the grizzly bits or the cuts that other people didn't want. Uh, is there somewhere in the timeline where there was like almost like a class-based transition away from using the whole animal to like, oh, uh, you could just get this prime cut of steak or something? Yeah, it, it, yes. And again, I'd have to generalize to, to have this discussion, but I'll give you an example of, of it happening here in the U.S. And part of it, a lot of it is, is, is class-based. And it happened, if you think, it happened just post, uh, I, to me, the biggest transition and the biggest change in, in, in a, and movement away from using offal and organ meats and those sorts of things happened just after the Civil War. Um, so if you think about what's happening at that time in this country, and we're very divided, number one, but one of the, I don't want to say positives from the Civil War, one of the things that did come out of the Civil War was uh, transcontinental railroads, right? So you end up, after the Civil War, you have this, and, and not long after it, you have this extensive railway system around the country. And as a result, a lot of the, the meat production started to centralize in places like St. Louis, um, places like that we know, we would think of today, Kansas City, that are major barbecue and meat areas still today. Those started popping up as, as hubs for the meat industry 
and they were taking, they were raising their animals there, throwing them on these trains and shipping them all over the country. And then they would get killed and butchered in different cities and different places. Um, this didn't work real well because the railway wasn't that reliable at the time. And you throw all these animals at a certain weight on these rail cars, and by the time they made it to market, uh, they've lost a lot of weight, many of them died, um, and they were losing a ton of money. So they decided instead of doing that, to, then we start figuring out, well, maybe we can refrigerate rail cars. But that wasn't very re reliable anyhow, but they, they had these refrigerated rail cars and said, you know, we're gonna not only raise the animals in places like Kansas City or St. Louis or whatever, but we'll also butcher them here pack them up on the rail cars, refrigerated, and then send them to the places that they needed to go. And they realized that the refrigeration was so unreliable that a lot of the things that would perish first, mostly things like organ meats, mm -hmm. would, um, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't make it there anyhow, and was taking up room on these, on these rail cars. So what they ended up doing was only shipping things like the flesh, the meat that would end up you know, getting to where they needed to be. And if there were, you know, as you know, if you, if you deal much with something like a liver and a T-bone steak, a liver only lasts a couple days even in the fridge and a T-bone steak could last two weeks, three weeks, right? So that had a much longer shelf life and, and especially during that time period. So you, all of a sudden, several things happen in, in a period of just a few decades. We go from everywhere having their own butchers and having and everybody's raising their own animals in different areas to concentrating those animals in certain areas, mm. um, but we'd still have those butchers, right? Because those animals would go and then they get slaughtered and butchered all over the place, and then that wasn't working very well. So they started get slaughtering them in, in locations. I think like Upton Sinclair, Sinclair in the jungle, yeah. things like this, right? And then they were trying to ship the entire animal, and then a lot of it would perish and it would be bad by the time it got there, especially because the, again the railway um, refrigeration was horrid then they were just shipping the meat. So in just a period, a matter of several decades, we go from locally sourced animals with a ton of butchers all over the country and people eating all parts of the animal to the butchers have disappeared, many of them, and people only have access to meat. That's it. And this is, this is terrible in a number of different ways. And then when you have access to the meat, uh, all of a sudden, you know, we start seeing, well, some of this meat is more valuable than others, and we like this one better. So certainly people of uh, higher class, people would have access to things like filet and those cuts that they want. And, and we start to establish this sort of meat hierarchy that's in line with social class. And at the same time, we have a ton of people. And so you have rich people in certain areas eating just meat. And they're known, that that's what they eat. And oh my gosh, we wouldn't eat liver, we don't even have any access to it. And then all of a sudden we have all these immigrants coming in the late 1800s and early 1900s from all over the world where they're still eating these traditional diets that are full of offal. They're full of organ meats, full of blood, full of fat. And they come here and all of a sudden they're trying to raise their social status. And what are they looking to? They're looking to these people that are only eating filet and, mm. and whatever steaks. And offal literally starts to disappear even in um, you know, some of these other communities that, you know, that because, oh my gosh, why would I eat that? The rich people are, eat, are eating this food. And it's a terrible series of events. The problem is, if, if I know I mentioned earlier, nutrient density and bioavailability are key when we think about eating food. The most, first of all, animal-based foods are the most, naturally, the most bioavailable nutrient dense of anything we could put into our mouths. Bioavailable Here. meaning you can extract the nutrients from it into your body. Yeah, so you put it in your mouth 
and you chew it up and it goes down in your digestive tract and your body gets the maximum amount of nutrients from it and it gets distributed to your body where, where it's needed. Um, don't be fooled. And I used to think this as well, and I, I, you might have heard me say this before, but I call it the can of soup effect. That I used to think if I looked on the can side of a can of, like, say, Campbell's soup and it has the breakdown of fat you know, carbohydrates, vitamin A, vitamin D, whatever. And if I, I used to have this thing in my head that if I dumped that whole can of soup in my mouth and swallowed it, that I would get all that nutrition. And that's not true. The only thing that that guarantees is that at some point, everything in that is coming out the other end. Yeah. That's the only thing it guarantees. So um, don't think that you, you look at a nutrition label and that nutrition is going where it needs to go. It's only going into your mouth. Um, a great analogy uh, that I, I read in a book recently uh, is they equated your digestive tract to the Lincoln Tunnel. And the, oh, God. I, no, no, no. It's, <laughs> it, it makes a lot of sense. It says when you go into the Lincoln Tunnel from New Jersey, you don't go into the Hudson River. You pop out the other side of Manhattan, right? So it's the same thing. You put food in your mouth. It's not going into your body. Your, your digestive tract is like a tunnel. And it's going to come out the other end. And I didn't mean Manhattan to be the other end. <laughs> That's a complete mistake. Uh, the, the idea is that it has to be broken down properly. You have to be healthy. Everything has to be firing on all cylinders for the nutrients from that food to get absorbed through the intestinal walls and do the work, uh, be there to do the work that it's supposed to do inside of your body. Uh, so when I say bioavailability, that means that your body has access to those nutrients right. more than just putting it into your mouth. So a great example, and we maybe could talk about this later, but um, maize, corn, is the most difficult grain for the human body to fully digest. In fact, there's only one technology we've ever created that allows us to have maximum access to all the nutrients in it. But uh, one of the nutrients it has in it is niacin. And corn's in everything. <laughs> and corn's in everything, which makes this a little bit even more powerful because it is in everything. Uh, and the, the only way to access the niacin in, in maize is if you put it through a process called nishtamalization, which is an ancient process. Other than that, if you grind it or boil it or make bread out of it, what, it doesn't matter what you do with it, the niacin passes through your body. So that's a good example that this corn, this maize, has niacin in it, and a, a very important nutrient for the human body. And if we eat it, it passes through our bodies. It's not available to our bodies unless we process it the right way. Let me ask you a question, because my brain is just firing right now. That process was done in, like, Mesoamerica. Mm -hmm. we, we have the science now to back up why that would be a necessary process, right? Sure. Did the people know that at the time? Like, that's incredible. It, 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 that is another version of that question I get asked all the time. How do people know how to do this? How do they figure this out? And I don't... I love to celebrate human ingenuity, but the reality of many of these things is that nobody really invented these things on purpose, I don't think. I think it was more, it just happened, and the people that did it were the ones that had healthier babies, and the populations grew, and, and some of these things just became part of culture and enculturated, just became part of the daily practice, and the people that happened to be doing them and got passed down generation after generation are the ones that, had again, had healthier babies, and those babies had healthier babies and did well, and the people that weren't doing it 
died off or wh- wh- whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be. So yeah, it's a practice that we know is at least 4,000 years old. Uh, it's probably, I, would, I think it's at least 10,000, but we know for sure it's at least 4,000 years old. Is it a fermentation process? No, it's actually an alkaline fermentation, which is uh, kind of semantics, but um, what happens, the, it's simple. So in the past, the way it would be done is you take ash from a fire, right? You take ash and put it in a pot with water and dried kernels of maize. And the ash is alkaline, right? So it raises the pH, it makes it basic. Uh, so you'd put that in there, you'd bring it to a simmer, simmer it for about 30 minutes, turn, you know, put the fire out and let it cover it and let it sit there overnight. And the next day you'd rinse it, you'd rinse the skins off because the skins kind of become gelatinized, rinse it off. And then you have something that's called nishtamal. It's a new auto word, um, uh, Aztec word. So it's called nishtamal that you can make uh, hominy or pasole from, or if you grind it, it turn, it's masa. So real tortillas, real tamales. The word tamale comes from the larger word nishtamalization. Okay. So when you do it through that process, you're increasing the calcium content. The two major things are you're increasing the calcium content and making the niacin in it available to our human bodies. But you're also improving the flavor, you're improving the texture, and you're improving the, the, the aroma of it at the same time. And it's incredibly versatile. Nowadays, uh, where it is done, and it's not done very often, where it is done, they use cow or calcium hydroxide, which is something you can dig right up out of the ground, or some places, some commercially even use sodium hydroxide, which is lye, to accomplish the same exact thing. Uh, again, if you're not doing that, this is, this is how powerful this is. The most widely grown grain in the world is maize. And the majority of the maize that's consumed, we're not getting the maximum nutrients out of it into our human bodies. And we have all these discussions about, you know, how to, you know, we need to genetically modify these crops so that we can plant more maize and they can, you know, live closer to one another and harvest them more easily and all these other sorts of things because we got to greed, you know, uh, feed this growing population. But we're not even getting all the nutrients from the food that we have. I'm not saying we shouldn't engage in a conversation like that. I don't agree with it, but I'm happy to engage in that. But not now. Let's let's do everything we can with the food we already have first. It's kind of like that. Um, I'm probably gonna make people upset here, but I, I, I love the I I love I hate I, I I think it's ironic where they say you know before engaging in any sort of exercise, you know, contact your doctor. I think it's, well, don't contact your doctor until you get as healthy as you can. And if you still have a problem, then talk to you. <laughs> I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch, but I think we're putting the cart before the horse here. And not to belabor this issue, but just to show you how powerful that simple technology is with maize. Um, when maize was first brought out of the New World to Europe and spread throughout the world, in its, and this was you know, happening in the you know, 1600s and all, uh, in its wake, was a disease called pellagra that the world had never seen before. Um, it, it first was documented in Spain in the 1700s, and it was documented in Italy, and it spreads throughout Europe. Anywhere maize went and became a staple of people's diets, people started getting sick. And I mean, I don't mean a few people. I mean, millions of people getting sick and hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands dying from, from this, the maize from this disease called pellagra, which was associated with the maize. Uh, it shows up again in the 1860s at the end of the Irish potato famine oh. when we started shipping massive quantities of maize as famine relief food. And then it showed up again here in America in the early 20th century, in the 1930s, 1920s, um, in the American Southeast where maize, you know, corn is huge. Um, and again, same thing. Millions of people got sick. Hundreds of thousands died. 
And it turns out it wasn't until 1936 they discovered what the issue was, and it was caused from a deficiency of niacin in the diet. And it wasn't until, and, and what we did as a country when we figured this out was we turned around and said, okay, well, let's just fortify everything with niacin. So every, almost every baked good you'll find at the store mm-hmm. is fortified with niacin, and that's why. But that didn't solve the problem. The problem, I mean, think about how, how ironic this is. People, millions of people getting sick, hundreds of thousands of people dying from a nutrient deficiency while eating massive quantities of a food that had massive quantities of that nutrient in it. They were literally pooping out exactly what would have kept them from getting sick, and they were dying. You studied this in Oaxaca, is that true? That's why we went to, that's why we went to Oaxaca to study the nishtamalization process. That's amazing. And in fact, that machine right next to you there, uh, he's looking at a, a three-horsepower stone, ground, uh, stone grinding molino, which is when we nishtamalize the maize and rinse it, we then put it in that hopper on the top, and then there's two stone wheels that grind it into masa for tortillas. Wow. It almost seems to me like, I know people will say, well, we need, and I don't, this isn't something I agree with, but some people have argued that, well, we need factory farming or we need this mass production because the population is so high or, you know, not everyone could be a hunter because there's just too many people and and not everyone can go out and source their own food. But it almost seems like a, a cultural problem where we just need to kind of slow down a bit. Yeah. Where some of these things maybe are more accessible and possible if, I don't know, we weren't like spending our whole day behind a desk, <laughs> I don't know, pushing a pen or something like that. Um, because these, like that sounds to me, I mean, it sounds amazing and this is, I'm learning a lot, but it sounds like a slower process and probably a company's going to say, I will cut every corner to make my white flour tortillas and send those out because it's the cheapest and we have to care about our bottom line. Yeah, I mean, you, actually, you just said a whole lot in just a few okay, sentences. Like, no, 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 it's, and they're all really important things. So real quick about the factory farming. You know, I, I was just with my wife earlier and we were driving, and here on the Eastern Shore, as you know, um, filled with, with, with fields, agricultural fields. Oh, yeah. And there's two things being grown right now, corn soy. and soy. <laughs> and almost all of it, I'm sorry, back up, almost none of it is food for humans, right? All it's going, it's animal feed and it's biofuel and all other sorts of things, but it's not being grown for humans. So it's very difficult for me to buy into this argument that we need all these Mm -hmm. factories, we need this and we need this, we need this, when all the fields that I'm driving past are being grown for things other than for, for human consumption. Now, certainly that's not the case all over the place, but that's the case certainly right here. I remember the first time I was in Italy, it blew my mind when I saw the same size equipment that we have here on the Eastern Shore in a field, and the entire field was tomatoes. And I mean, huge tractor trailer trucks getting filled with tomatoes. And I, and I didn't know why it was so weird to me at the, at the time, but then I realized that's the first, now again, I am not, I haven't been in agricultural fields all over the world and all over this country, so I know there's a lot of farmers doing amazing things. That's not what I'm suggesting. But to me, in my small little world here where I see nothing but soy and corn and then went over and I saw food mm. coming from a field at that level for human consumption, it, it, it literally blew my mind. And I also wondered how you could pack that many tomatoes and the bottom ones stayed. <laughs> I think they're probably making sauce out of all of it. But anyhow, so so that, that that's one thing. The other thing, yeah, the the... 
thing that I think, and which is the, and it forms the basis for all of my work right now, is that we need to do, yes, certainly slowing down is a part of it, but we also need to recognize that the question that we ask when we're trying to be healthy is not the only question we should be asking. In my mind, it's really not, not as important as the second question. The, first, the question we ask, you know, what should I eat? The question I've been asking my entire life, when I looked at myself in the mirror and I wanted to lose weight or become healthy or whatever it was, what should I eat? I just, somebody tell me what to eat. Every diet out there is based on what we should be eating. The, the information we get from our doctors and our nutritionists, from our food lab, all of it, the marketing world, this is what you should be eating, this is what you shouldn't be eating. And the, the, it's bypassing the most important question. The most important question and the thing that makes it the way that we eat as humans different from other animals is how should we be eating? Because mo what most people don't understand is that almost every food we, go, we put into our body, we have absolutely no biological business eating. Our bodies mm. are not designed to either get it and or consume it properly and digest it completely on our own. And I don't, and this isn't an animal plant thing. It's, I don't care if it's dairy as adults or, uh, or uh, grains and wheat and barley and corn, or even if it's animals, like these are things that were never in our diets until we started creating technologies to harvest that food and or process that food to, to make it safe and nourishing for our, our incredibly inefficient digestive tracts. So that question, what, let's put that aside for a minute. It's how. Like, that's the thing we've been doing for millions of years. That's the thing that allowed us to take these foods and transform them into something our bodies can do something with. So nishtamalizing maize is one example. Uh, bacterial fermentation that's a part of sourdough bread making is another one. Lacto-fermenting vegetables, the, the sprouting, soaking, cooking. Those are the things that transform raw ingredients into something that our bodies can safely and efficiently do something with. And here's the cool thing. Most of us are like, oh, not only don't we, don't we think we have enough time to do it, but well, I need this, you know, maybe I, I just don't know how to do it and I, maybe I need a skill set I don't have or I can't do that in my little kitchen or my apartment in Manhattan. No, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. but the, these are things that we've been doing for millions of years in caves with open fires and sticks and stone tools. Everybody's kitchen, I don't care where you live, is better <laughs> equipped than that cave is. So you can do it in your own house. It takes some slowing down, some recognizing that there's things, a couple things that we need to learn. And you know what? Between um, you know, people giving classes and YouTube and everything else, the information is out there. We just have to look. But, and I think kind of what you may have been alluding to, uh, and I'd also like to say, we need to place some cultural value on that. We place value on how many hours we're working at the office or what our paycheck is. But very few, you know, and I don't want to say this is an individual thing, but society in general doesn't place enough value on us nourishing our families properly. Mm. And these are things we can do in, in our home. Yeah, I'm going to go back to Italy because you just mentioned Italy. And I know you spent some time there, I think, at like a culinary institute. Mm -hmm. Italian culinary institute, yep. I guess this is more of a uh, the what question, right? The what of eating. But uh, like most people, I would... Or, probably like most people would think, oh, pasta in Italy. Uh, a few years ago, I read two books by uh, Dr. Promuter, I think, yeah. Grain Brain and Brain Maker. And so I would think pasta bad. Um, tell me about your experiences there and like what you were studying and what you found out. I mean, pasta is delicious, though. Pasta <laughs> is delicious. Pasta is delicious. Um, no, pasta is bad. So, and... 
uh, my good friend, Chef uh, John Nochita, who runs a good time Carolina Institute, is going to kill me for even saying that because he makes some delicious pasta. But you know, grains are something that our bodies are not designed to consume without help. And unfortunately, with most pasta, we're talking about grains that come off the stalk, they're dried, they're ground, and then they're cooked into pasta. It's not enough to overcome the problems with the grains in order to make them as safe and nourishing for our bodies. So the, the issue with grains is that they are, they're designed to lie dormant for a long period of time. In fact, we've found grains that have been sitting in the, you know, sitting in archeological sites that are thousands of years old that we've been able to germinate. I mean, that's something. Mm. And the reason that grains can stay dormant and still viable is because they are coated with all sorts of anti-nutrients, things like phytic acid and lectins and essentially toxins that allow it to stay protected until it's in the right environment to support new life, okay? And, if, and so that's the case. And if you take that grain and you dry it and grind it and eat it, all those issues are still there. If you take that grain and put it in the environment that allows the toxins and the anti-nutrients to let down their defenses, then we can consume it. And that is a warm, moist environment. That's it. A warm, moist environment for a period of time. Because think about it, you take a seed, you put it in a warm, moist environment, it sprouts. Mm. That's exactly what it does. So sprouting is, is essentially a form of detoxification for, many, for, for, for some of these grains. Oh. But sour, making sourdough bread is another because you know, in a sourdough, in, in bread making, in modern bread making, most of the breads we have access to, we use yeast to leaven the bread. So when you, you put yeast in with the flour and all the other, you get it wet and make your bread, the, the yeast activates, feeds off the carbohydrates and produces carbon dioxide and alcohol. The carbon dioxide is what makes the bread rise and the alcohol gets burned off when we, when we cook it, right? So the only thing it really did was make the bread get big and fluffy, which we like that. And we like the, you know, you're not eating a cracker, you're eating a slice of bread. We, and we like the texture of it, so that's wonderful. But uh, chemically, nothing's changed in order to make those grains any more mm. nutritious and safe for our bodies. Sourdough bread, which is the way bread's been made for over 10,000 years, is a combination of a bacterial and yeast fermentation. The yeast fermentation, whether it's commercial yeast or wild yeast, does the same thing. So we'll put that aside for a minute. The bacterial fermentation is what transforms those grains and transforms that gluten into something completely different. And that's what's happening during some of that soaking. That's what's happening in the digestive tracts of granivorous birds like ducks and geese that are designed to eat, consume grains oh, wow. safely. And that's what we can replicate outside of our bodies to make those make the, the grains healthier for us to eat. So I say some pastas, listen, pasta tastes delicious. Yeah. <laughs> do not get me wrong. But I don't do well with gluten. I do not do well with, um, un, or just with white flour. But you can take that same technology of the, using the bacterial fermentation, and, and we're going to start actually selling it here as well and do a sourdough pasta. And it's Whoa. the same thing. So it's pasta. It tastes and looks and acts the same way as the pasta you're used to, but it's a lot healthier for us to eat. And the other cool thing about the bacterial fermentation and real sourdough bread is, um, you know, the glycemic index, which is your body's response to, to right, uh, the blood sugar response to 
uh, when, you're eat, when you're eating eating food. So 100 is pure glucose, your response to pure glucose, right? That's 100 on the glycemic index. And it's separated into high, medium, and low. Anything above 70 is considered high, and anything below 55 is considered low. And bread, and I don't care if it's 100% whole wheat bread or 100% white bread, just regular bread from the grocery store is uh, usually right around 71, which is in the high range, yeah. which isn't that far off from pure glucose, right? It's in, the, it's in the high range. If you take those same exact ingredients, and I don't mean change, don't change a thing, same exact ingredients, and put it through a sourdough process, it drops to about 54, Whoa. which is not only in the medium, it's in the low range. So same ingredients, this is that sort of difference between what are we eating and how are we eating. Same exact ingredients, one is high range, incredibly dangerous for if you're diabetic, incredibly, a huge problem for, for lots of us, and put it through a sourdough process. And not only is the flavor, in, in my mind, the flavor and texture enhanced, but you're all of a sudden in, in down at the same levels like squash as far as a glycemic index Whoa. is concerned. Did you see that in Italy or like what? Oh, what did, no, that what has did nothing you, to do with Italy. Um, what did you study, I guess, and, and learn there? So the first time I went to Italy, well, the first time I went to the Italian Culinary Institute, I went there for a, a nose-to-tail butchering oh, workshop. Cool. Class, workshop. It, was, it was an extensive master's program in, in, in this. And that's where I first met Chef John Nochita, who was absolutely amazing, and spent time at, at the Italian Culinary Institute, which is, I mean, this guy is not only connecting people with really good food and, and obviously skills, but he's creating a worldwide network that is, is, is you know, I don't want to use the word family loosely because family is incredibly important to me, but it's, it's damn close to bordering on that. I mean, he's creating a network, a family around the world of incredible people. So I went there f for this class, and when I, when I started listening to him and learning from him, I'm realizing that we had a lot of things in common. I mean, his, his view of he would always tie stuff back historically, and he's doing it by hundreds of years, and I'm certainly thinking about thousands and millions of years, but that same approach to food and that connection was incredibly important to him and it's incredibly important to me. So we connected partway through the time I was out there and we learned more about what each other does and, and he started having me come back to teach there. I would go there several times a year and teach and then, except for COVID, and then I went back a few weeks ago, which is what you're referring to. Um, I did a work, it was a 25th year reunion of the culinary suit which was supposed to happen last year but covid kind of shut it down so we, he did it a few weeks ago and i went out and taught a workshop and i brought my son and so it was oh, that's cool more of a of a teaching and and relaxing thing than it was to learn too much but he, okay. you always learn when you're around him in 2016 or 2017 i went to kenya and my friend's friend slash like ex worked for the un he's from italy but he worked for the un in Nairobi, mm -hmm. and his boss was um, one of the wives of a Maasai chief, and we went to the to the Maasai Mara, and we met Maasai them. Maasai Mara, yeah. And you know, I was like this, like again, like Bourdain fanboy, and I was like, I wanted to drink the blood, the blood and the milk. And it had there had been a, a bad drought, and the Maasai, I think, raise cattle. My they do. I'm yeah. a little okay. Cool. A little foggy on this. And so they it was either a calf, I guess, then, or a goat. And they were like, okay, we can kill this for you. And I was like, all right, let me hold on here. Like, I'm this idiot American who kind of wants to do this for glory. I, I don't want you to kill this thing just for me. 
I don't have a platform where I'm like educating people about this, um, but you do. And I saw that you had done some incredible things in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were two things I was really interested in. One was that, I guess the blood and the milk and right. then the yogurt. So I'm super curious about your experiences there and like what you learned about food there. All right. So we went there, we, we, we made contact with an incredible, uh, incredible family in, um, the last name is Browns. In they had they run a cheese business, Browns Cheese oh. in Nairobi, and also own and run Lewa House, which is out on the Lewa uh, Conservancy, where they the big conservancy for white rhinos and uh, amazing, which is f- certainly in the bush in, in 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 Kenya. And I connected with them at a cheese making class in um, in Iceland a, a couple oh. years earlier, or actually about a year earlier, and. I had always wanted to get to Kenya because I wanted to learn exactly what you said about this particular type of yogurt called Mersic and also because of the, the blood and the milk. Uh, two different groups, two completely different parts of, of Kenya. And we went and back with that family and they went with us. We, we went together. It was, it was an amazing experience. So the Mersic is a, what they call an ash yogurt. And I know the people listening can't see it, but if you turn around that gourd that's sitting there with the calorie shells on yeah. it, that's the gourd that we made it in. Oh, cool. So this is how it's made. Um, it's actually not yogurt, it's called clabber, but, or it's, it's actually clabber, not yogurt, but they, um, they take a gourd and they clean it out and they'll take a stick from a special tree, depending on which group you're from, it's a particular kind of tree, and they'll burn the end of the stick in the fire, get it super hot, glowing hot, and they stick it inside the gourd and they scrape the inside of the gourd with this burning hot stick, which is a huge embers on the end of it. Uh, and it's actually not, it's actually charcoal. It's not ash at that point, but it, they, they coat the inside of it with this charcoal. And then they milk, it could be a goat, it could be a cow. Uh, they milk it, it's, so it's raw milk. It's already fermenting as it yeah. comes out of the animal. Put it right into this gourd, cover it, and let it sit for about two days. And at the end of the two days, it, it's, it's fermenting on its own. And it makes a yogurt-like drink called Mersic. So they call it ash yogurt. It's actually charcoal clabber. But regardless, it's this incredibly nutrient-rich, bioavailable, sour, pleasantly sour um, yogurt kefir-like drink. Okay. Right? Um, and they drink it every day. They During the wet season, the animals are producing enough milk that they have a surplus of this. So they take some and consume it within like two days. And they take some and they set it aside and just let it sit and continues to ferment for months, months. Oh, and, and they don't do anything to it. They just fill this gourd, set it aside, let it ferment. And you know, six months later during the dry season when there's very little food, they'll take about a tablespoon of this and they put it, and now at this point, it's, it's uh, incredibly dense. A lot of the moisture's evaporated, so it's thick, it's clay-like. And they take about a tablespoon of this out, put it in a container, add a little bit of water, and they drink that because it's the only food that they have. Right. Now, it's celebrated because it's supposed to not only you know, bring you health and life and all this, but uh, Kenya produces a lot of the world's most incredible marathon runners. Yeah. So when, they, when a lot of these marathon runners, if they've come from an area like West Pokot, where I learned to do this, uh, Mersic, if they come from an area like that, they come back and the celebration involves this. And I don't know if it's a result of... It, it resu- it, um, Involves consuming a lot of this, a lot of this Mersic. So I don't know if it's a result of that or just its um, association with health and longevity and whatever. But 
it's been sometimes you read these articles and I'm like, oh, the, the, the runners that come out of Kenya are these great runners because they consume this Mersic, which is certainly not the case. It's a combination of a lot of different things. But I wanted to learn about it. Um, and then the other, the other thing was the blood and the, and the milk. And we went up to another section of Kenya in this incredibly remote area uh, when we were with the Samburo, which are very Maasai-like. They're okay. nomadic pastoralists, which means oh, amazing. they don't... They're not farmers. In fact, they eat almost no vegetables whatsoever. Their food, their diet is entirely animal-based, but very little meat. They very rarely kill their animals. In fact, most of what they eat is a combination of blood and milk, most of what they consume. And they don't, they think of blood, and this is hard, for, think about giving blood as not that you had to kill the animal to get it, but more like you gave blood at a blood bank. And you were fine the next day, and it took you a few weeks, and you've already you know, recovered that blood in your own body. They think of blood like they think of milk, this sort of renewable resource that this animal can give throughout its life t for you to consume. So what th this is when we went, and, and the group we were with was incredibly remote. It took a plane flight, several days of driving, camping, and finally the, last, um, the very last day we drove... We ran out of even dirt roads and drove up a, a, a dried river for about an hour to oh. get to this, this group. It was amazing. But we get out, and we're with them, and they grabbed the cow, one of the cows, and they brought it over. And the only time the animal struggled or squealed, made any noise at all, was when they grabbed it. That was it. They brought it over, and they tied around its neck a big rope almost like it's very similar to giving blood it's almost like the rubber band they put around your arm right to see your vein and they they saw and the jugular got real big so they could see it and they walked up to it with this little tiny it looked like a kid's bow and arrow and they shot him or the cow and her in the, in the jugular and uh the arrow just went in about a quarter inch and popped out and then blood started streaming out of its neck like you turn on a faucet and my youngest daughter <laughs> was beside herself. She was nine at the time. She thought they killed the cow. And imagine, oh, you saw it's this massive animal. Somebody walked yeah. up with a bow and arrow. As a nine-year-old, a toy bow and arrow doesn't look like a toy bow and arrow. It's a bow and arrow. And all of a sudden, blood is, it looked like a horror movie to her, right? But they walked up with a gourd, collected about a quart of blood. And as soon as they got as much as they wanted, they took the rope off its neck and they picked up a little dirt from the ground and threw it in the wound. I mean, the wound was you know, the size of my fingernail. And it walked away, and it stopped bleeding. That was it. Whoa. Didn't even know anything happened. And they'll, the next day they'll do a different cow, and maybe in a month they go back to that right. cow, or two weeks they go back to that cow. So they had uh, about a quart of this blood, oh. and they uh, picked up a stick right off the ground, stuck it in there, and started stirring it because they wanted it the coagulation part to happen around the stick. So they stirred it. They stirred it for about five minutes. Uh, it coagulated around the stick, and they gave that to a dog to eat. So they had this, the rest of the blood that was left, and then somebody else went and milked another cow, and they got about almost equal amount of milk. So they had raw milk, fresh blood, everything's still warm. They mixed them both back and forth together and then drank it. And I will tell you, everybody except for my youngest daughter, who, again, was a little, still a little traumatized from what she saw, uh, drank it. And it was amazing. Was it hot? Oh, it was warm. It was like a, I, I like to say, it was like a warm, this is going to sound not as appetizing as it was, but I, it's hard to describe what blood tastes like, uh, in blood and milk. But it, I thought it tasted like a chocolatey, irony, salty milkshake. Melted Whoa. milkshake. <laughs> I mean, I've had, I've had like, I've had blood sausage and right. I've had like blood cube in like soups and stews and stuff. Right. Um, 
anything? It was pleasant. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was like a it was like a blood sausage. It was like a really good blood sausage without that texture, you know, because usually they put in oats or rice or something in the blood sausage. But um, th this was, you knew that you were getting something your body could do something with when you had it. It wasn't like you drank this and you were hungry five minutes later. It was, it was something special. Now, certainly the context, being around them, yeah. everybody there. Here's the other really cool thing about it. I've been with my family all over the world. You know, that's... To, to, to learn these kinds of things from different groups. And when we pulled up that dried riverbed and saw there were three, I think they were in their late teens, early 20s, uh, members of this, of this group, Sombrero Warriors, were standing there waiting for us. And it looked like something out of a movie. And I remember looking at them and their bodies, and this I could say this for everybody there, their bodies were what I consider the epitome of the human form. I mean, they were muscular, but not like bodybuilder muscular. They were lean, but not gaunt. They had white, broad smiles. Their, their eyes were white. And, and I mean, everything about them just spoke health. Like, this is, this is what humans should look like. These people almost exclusively consume nothing but blood and raw milk. And, you know, here I am on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, and I'm fighting to try to make as many people as possible nourished and healthy and we have all and so many, the amount of money and, and 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 time and effort spent on trying to nourish humans around the world is just insane and here we are i've seen the health i just left the healthiest people i've ever seen in my life and the almost the sole two things that they eat every single day that's responsible for that health are illegal or hard to get in maryland so tell me about that, though, because that's going to be so confusing for people who are like, where's the leafy green stuff? I've, I know I have to have that to be healthy. Like, how, like, is this through genetics? Can anyone just transition to that type of a diet? How does that work? Well, let me, let me qualify that last thing I said. So okay. the raw milk is illegal in Maryland, and the blood is good blood, fresh blood is incredibly difficult to get. It almost might as well be illegal because it's very difficult to get. So just to, 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 to put a, a, a bow on that, the... Um, this is what I would say to everyone. Let me back up for one second. We are, humans are the only species on this planet that hire people to tell us how we should be eating. Mm. Now, I'm not saying doctors and nutritionists are bad. There's some doctors and nutritionists that are incredible. I, and I spend a lot of time talking to, to many of them. They're incredible. But it is unique that humans feel the need and we do, because it's so confusing anymore. There's, there's billions of dollars getting spent on marketing and advertising onto food that actually do make us sick. And here we are trying to figure out what we, what we should be eating. So we actually hire people to, 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 um, to tell us how to eat. But I think we should be spending more time having people teach us how to cook and how to make that food as nourishing as possible. But that, 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 that's a, a complete aside. Think about... We need to take responsibility for ourselves again and, and try to understand and, 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 try and take responsibility for ourselves to figure out how we should be eating and how we should be nourishing our own families. And we need to sort of filter all the information that we get. I don't care if it's from a newspaper or muscle and fitness magazine or a doctor or nutritionist or the USDA or the FDA or a friend or even from our parents. We need to filter all of that information. The idea that we need healthy, I'm sorry, that we need greens to make us healthy, is, is that true? I'm not saying it's not. I'm, I'm saying we should question everything. Mm. Everything. Is spinach healthy? 
to me, I would say at this moment, spinach is is probably one of the most dangerous foods, the most dangerous of the unprocessed foods in a grocery store, which is a strong statement, I know, but it's yeah. I, I 100% believe Why? it. Why? Oh, give me two seconds. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'll be happy to dive into it, but it's going to take us well mm. off the stop. So I, I'm not saying vegetables are not healthy for us to eat. What I'm saying is that don't believe... First of all, start from not believing anything you've heard, including anything I've said here. This should be something you filter for yourself. Every other animal on the planet figures this out on their own. Like, they don't hire anybody else, and their brains are a fraction of the size as ours. We do need some assistance because, like I mentioned earlier, there is an entire powerful industry that is making money on the backs of us getting sick. So... We do need a little bit of help, for sure, to figure all this out and navigate the modern foodscape, which is incredibly confusing. But we need to step back and literally question everything we've ever learned, everything about food that we've ever learned. And we need to because we've got it wrong right now. We have never been sicker as a species as we are right now, and most of that is due to the way that we feed ourselves. And not only are we making ourselves sick, we're killing and destroying the planet at the same time, feeding ourselves this way. So a lot of things are incredibly wrong, and we should question everything, not just the easy ones, not just the, oh, you know, we shouldn't eat cookies, or, oh, you know, we should do this. And No, those are easy things, and they don't really impact our lives. The hard, difficult, powerful changes we need to make impact, unfortunately, our entire lives. We need to start cooking again. We need to start buying food that might be a little bit more expensive and sourcing those, right? So we need to question everything. And one of them is... Is the way we've been taught to eat for the past 10 years, the past 50 years, the past 75 years healthy? I would say absolutely not. Like everything about it is wrong because we're all sick. And you go in and you go into these, when we go into these indigenous and traditional communities and see the health that these people are enjoying, and I mean enjoying their health. And they're doing the kind of things that I mentioned earlier. They're living until they keel over dead. And there's, listen, there's elderly people there getting up and walking around. I mean, things we wish our grandparents could get up out of their walkers and throw their canes down. <laughs> this is what I see, right, in the middle of the, the bush in Africa with no medical care whatsoever. There's lessons to be learned there. Um, so, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be eating vegetables. My family and I eat a lot of vegetables. We're selective about which we eat and how we process the vegetables but, um, and how we cook them. But vegetables are fantastic. Animals are more nutrient-dense and more bioavailable. And, and I 1,000% believe that the introduction of animals into our diet, especially from a nose-to-tail approach when we started hunting on our own 2 million years ago, that introduction, the, the meat and the organs and the entire animal is the you know, introducing them into our diet is actually what helped make us human. And we need to remember that. But that's another, that's another story. So real quick, the spinach. So plants... And this isn't a plant-animal-based conversation, but, I, right. but there are some important things to understand about plants. And I'm not bashing plants, but there's things, a couple of things you need to understand. Plants, all plants are toxic. All of them. At some level, all plants are toxic. Some of those toxins don't do anything, really, don't do anything to us. Some of those toxins can build up over time and cause issues later on. And some of those toxins will kill us outright, like kind of eating the wrong mushroom. But all plants have some toxin in them. And the reason they do is because they are trying to fight a battle and produce viable offspring, and they don't move. 
So they, they, they're engaging in chemical warfare with the world around them. Uh, so that's, understand that. The, one of the dangerous toxins that's becoming, we're understanding a lot more about more recently, is, is a toxin called oxalate. Oxalates, and they uh, these are tiny little um, they look uh, little plant crystals under a microscope. They look like tiny shards of glass, and when you consume them, your body realizes that they're incredibly dangerous. So they gra- your body grabs them and like stores them in different places, usually in your extremities or in an area that's experienced trauma before in your joints, and over time these things build up. Especially if you have certain chemical imbalances, but it, but they'll build up over time and cause all sorts of issues. So, kidney stones are a great example. Oh. Um, if you've ever, some people on their on their fingers get uh, little calcium deposits yeah. right on their hands. That's a result of them. Uh, sometimes, quite often, uh, people have pain in their feet, which gets diagnosed as gout, and it's actually not gout. It's something called pseudo gout, which is caused by calcium oxalate crystals. Um, lots of different things. And spinach is one of the worst offenders in, in the vegetable oh. world. So spinach, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name a few that have this, high, high levels of oxalates, and they're going to blow your mind what they are. But spinach, kale, Swiss chard, um, rhubarb, almonds, incredibly high. I eat so many almonds. Oh, well, my God. Me, and so do I, I don't anymore. But I'll tell you what, the, I, I, I forget the, I, these numbers are not 1,000% accurate because I'm not an oxalate expert, but something, I forget, we're supposed to consume, it's recommended we consume no more than 50 like milligrams of oxalates a day or something, and, and, a, and a handful of almonds has like 500. I mean, again, I, I don't know the exact yeah. numbers, but I do know a handful of almonds have exponentially more than we're supposed to consume in a, in a single day. Well, can't you make like arsenic out of almonds or something like that? Yes, that's a different toxin. Oh, okay. But, but I will say that for the first time ever, I read, I read a really interesting medical report a few months ago. For the first time ever, we have children under the age of 12 presenting with kidney stones. Whoa. In families of vegan parents who are drinking almond milk. Massive. So they're not letting their kids drink milk. They're drinking massive quantities of almond milk. And they're getting, and they're, I mean, we have, we have 11-year-old kids getting kidney stones. Something's massively wrong. This is where, in. I don't even think this is just food. You see this in everything, politics, every walk of life or, or every facet of life. It's so hard, and I guess to what you're talking about before, to like know which piece of information to believe because we're over at the house and my dad's got this like giant uh, Tupperware full of almonds and he literally was just talking about, oh, I read this article and it was like, Almonds are the number one most nutrient dense food. Depends and, on who you're listening to. It, and right. So here's here's the thing with with all of this. It, it really boils down. It's taken me a lifetime. Yeah. A PhD, literally traveling around the world and living in the most remote areas possible, to put some of this together to try to understand this, right? And, and I'm only like scratching the surface. And I know there's a lot of people doing very similar things to me that are doing incredible work, but it really boils down to common sense. So you don't have to know about spinach and oxalates to realize that, you know, first of all, I'm not saying eating spinach is bad. Eating spinach when it would grow in your area for a couple yeah. weeks every year, 
not a very big deal. And there are some benefits to eating spinach too, don't get me wrong. But we don't do that anymore. We take spinach and import it from all over the world and grow it in hoop houses. And all of a sudden, a food that would have been available for a few weeks is now available 365 days a year and is relatively cheap. Mm. And we've built, the, we've built it up as almost this superfood. So this idea that some is good and more is better without any suggestion of the possibility of something being bad about it allows people to just, oh, if I'm going to be healthy, I should eat spinach. Oh, my God, I, I can make a, a spinach and kale shake with almond milk every day. And all of a sudden, they're, they're eating massive quantities of something that has high amounts of oxalates in it and will destroy your body. Eating a couple, e eating fresh spinach, fresh locally grown spinach for a few weeks every year, awesome. Eating spinach every single day in a shake, is there something something absolutely wrong with, whether it's spinach or not. And the same thing with almonds. I mean, we, 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 we've used fossil fuel, sorry, fossil fuel and migrant labor workforces and things that are, uh, you know, beyond our, 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 our vision and our sight to take incredibly difficult things to do like harvesting and shelling almonds. I mean, I remember being a kid going to my grandparents' house and they had a bowl of nuts in the shell and a yeah. nutcracker. And you'd sit there and you'd spend all day and you'd <laughs> eat like four nuts, right? Today, like you said, your dad or whoever's got a big bucket of shelled almonds. I mean, all of a sudden we've taken a lot of the things away that um, you know, spread out or, 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 or limited the amount of consumption on things and now we can just grab handful after handful and we can buy, buy cases of it at BJ's so it's super cheap and, and we're causing our own problems as a result of it. I don't know all the constituents of almonds or spinach, and I don't need to to understand something's wrong with that system. Mm. The, when we look more at hunter-gatherer lifestyle, like, humans, modern-day homo sapiens have been on the planet for 300,000 years. We've been growing food for, at the most, in certain areas, 15,000. So the entire time we've been on this planet, we've been hunter-gatherers. If I look at the way that they ate, the, the, um, the buzzwords today, eating seasonally, eating locally, nutrient dense, nose to tail, those things were just by default part of daily life. And to me, I think we need to think about those things and do them the same way here. You know, things, and, and, and they're easy steps. I know I'm talking about some things like some people might be listening think, I'm not gonna nishtamalize maize and stone grind it in my kitchen. And I'm not suggesting you do, although it's super fun to do it. I'm not gonna butcher a pig on my counter and eat the intestines and the liver, although there's something very valuable to that as well. All I'm suggesting is even small little steps towards going to the farmer's market, all right, and meeting the farmer. God, go find a butcher in your area and buy your meat from the butcher. Um, take an entire chicken home and eat the entire chicken, the white and the dark meat, and then take the bones and make bone broth from it. These are simple, tiny steps with powerful ramifications, powerful results at, at the end of it. You throw me a signal at any point if we're getting too late, because I, I could do this forever. What, what time is it? Uh, let's see. No, we're good. I got, I got a few more minutes. I'm good. All right, cool, cool, cool. Um, part of your travels around the world, you took your family on the road for like a year, right? Absolutely, yeah. That's incredible. Um, well, on the road. We were based out of Ireland. Okay. But we, we went to 15 or 16 different countries from Ireland. Is that when you went to Kenya? Yes. Yep. Is there anywhere that you haven't been that's doing something ancestral that you really want to check out? 
Yeah, a ton. <laughs> a ton. <laughs> I'll say uh, top on my bucket list right now. Um, God, well, there's just so many places. The two on my bucket list right now is uh, New, uh, the Highlands of Papua New Guinea. Whoa. Because not for food as much as they are still making – I do a lot of work with stone tools. They are still making a stone tool there and using it that um, – that's the only place ever – I mean, three and a half million years of stone tool production in our past, what they're doing there – is the only time it's ever been done. I mean, you can imagine the same thing, it's reinvented over time. They're doing this one thing which is super cool and I wanna see it while they're still actually making and using these things for, for daily life. But food-wise, I have to get to Sardinia for a lot of different reasons, but one reason is I'm very interested in detoxifying plants and the role of technology to detoxify plants for food and those sorts of things. I am very interested in charcoal and ash and consumption of clay um, to help with detoxification. And they, there's a traditional egg corn bread made in Sardinia. Whoa. And they think it is the precursor to polenta, right? The, the, original, the original polenta. Now, polenta is made out of corn or maize, which didn't come to Italy until the 1700s. So if there was something, it was made out of something other than maize beforehand. So this, this sort of flat breadish like polenta-like bread was made with egg corns. Now, egg corns are toxic. They have tannic acid. And there's several different ways to detoxify them. Most people who deal with egg corns today in a modern sense, um, the, the toxin is water-soluble, so they, they leach it and leach the egg corns in water. But this bread was made with a combination of clay and ash in the bread with egg corns. And I have got to see this being made and understand how. The, the cool thing with clay, clay is a major detoxifier. Um, and most animals consume clay on purpose, both in some cases for supplementing certain trace minerals that are found in the clay in our diets, but also because it, the, the, in certain clays, certain clays will bind with certain toxins and put it into a state that our body doesn't recognize. So it'll pass right through our bodies. Meanwhile, we can still get the nutrition from that food. I, I was in or, sorry, Bolivia several years ago doing this exact thing with poisonous potatoes with the anti-mara oh. group there with, who will eat these poisonous potatoes with uh, clay. Literally every bite, the potato gets dipped in the clay, they take a bite, dipped in the clay, and they take a bite. For, for the, I mean, these are incredibly dangerous potatoes, will kill you dangerous. Wow. And that's how they do it. So I wanna go, I wanna go to Sardinia and, and see this being made. Um, they also make, you know, costume martsu, do you know the, uh, the cheese with the, with the bugs on the inside? No. Costume uh, martsu I need to make. And um, that, though, though, that's a short version of a lot longer list that I still have to do. Oh, that's amazing. I'm going to, you mentioned Iceland kind of in passing there. I'm going there for the first time in August. Did you do the, I don't know what it's called. Fermented but the, shark? Yeah. Absolutely. You got to go the Snellfuss Peninsula. Is it like really, really yeah. gnarly? Like <laughs> it's, it is. It's, um, are you going to go? I can give you the contact of the people there. That would be, yeah, oh, I'd love to, yeah, chat with There's them too. There's a family still, yeah, you should go out there and do, do it, uh, Whoa, do an interview with them. Hell They're yeah. Amazing. So the, st the quick story with the fermented shark is, so these, um, there are Greenlandic sharks that uh, for 600 years ago, they were harvesting for, because the, they would render the fat or get the fat 
from the, the sharks, and it was supposedly incredibly clean burning and superior to whale oil lamps when they rendered. Okay. The so and they weren't rendered. I'm sorry. They I think they took they took it out of their livers. The livers are very fatty, and they they killed these massive. Uh, the Greenlandic shark are huge. Some of the largest sharks in the world. They would kill this entire animal, take out the liver, press the oil out, and use that oil and sell it at a high price for burning for for lamps. Um, but the flesh is toxic, so we couldn't eat it. And so they'd kill this entire animal, take its liver, and they'd, they'd rot away, right? It, it was very wasteful. And about 400 years ago, they realized that if they fermented the meat, they would detoxify the meat and make it safe for human consumption. And I, nobody knows how they figured it out. I think they were burying, you know, when they had these huge carcasses, they'd bury them on the beach to get them, you know, so there's no smell and the animals weren't eating them or whatever, they'd bury them and sometimes somebody dug one up and realized they could eat it and not die. So now <laughs> they, um, they don't take the, uh, they don't kill these animals for their livers anymore. In fact, they don't kill these animals on purpose anymore, but they're a bycatch of the fishing industry. And by the time, I, I forget what fishing industry it is, but by the time they pull the nets up out of the water, these sharks are dead and they're getting killed by mistake. So this family, uh, th there may be several people still doing it, but I know for sure this one particular family on the Snellfus Peninsula takes these sharks that are already dead, right? They've been killed through this, that they would otherwise just get tossed back into the water and then they take the meat and they ferment oh, it and sell it. And it's, um, it's amazing. I mean, it, it is an incomplete experience. It, it's amazing. It's did, amazing. Did your kids do that too or no? They've had it. They weren't with me on that trip. Okay. Uh, but I brought some back, and they've had it since. How I've seen in on social media, like your kids butchering animals. Your daughter started this amazing company here. I'd like to buy some bread on my way out. How have you got? You know, kids want to go to McDonald's. How have you gotten them to to buy in like this? It's amazing. <laughs> it's not. You know, I, I sit here, and it's very easy to sit here for an hour or two with you and, and talk about how wonderful it is and how easy. It's it's not easy because we are fighting. I mean, I'm raising, I'm raising kids. My wife and I are raising a seven, right now. I have a 17 year old daughter, a 15 year old son, and a 13 year old daughter, and the social pressure. Tough ages, yeah. Tough, yeah, tough ages. The social pressures that are trying to get them to eat complete junk are unbelievable, unbelievable. And there's certain things we put our foot down on. Um, you know, there are certain fast food restaurants they're not allowed they're not allowed to go to, both for nutritional reasons, but also for ethical and, and other reasons as well. Um, some some for political reasons. And the at home, we do our best to feed our family the most nourishing food possible and do it in the most nourishing way possible. And I mean, when I, when I mentioned earlier about getting up from the table and feeling better than when you sat down, that shouldn't just be biological. It's, it should be psychological and emotional as well. I mean, you should get up. Eating a meal should be a full human experience because the way that we deal with food as humans is different than any other animal on the planet. Mm. So we make it a point to eat together as much as possible and the most nourishing food possible. But... You know, as far as them being adventurous and butchering, it's, it's we've just put, it's so, I mentioned this earlier to you before we started the interview, creating the right context is essential. And I'll give you a quick quick example, and we probably should wrap up. Sure. Um, in what the, the conversation we were having was, in my teaching at the college, I found that if I create the right context for really amazing, teaching and learning experiences, 
immersive, project-based, hands-on teaching and learning where they're using all of their senses and there's, there's a real result coming out of the end of it um, and there's a reason to be engaged, students will shed themselves of some of the modern cultural baggage and inhibitions that they have and dive right in whole body experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's been very valuable. And the same thing with my kids. So if we create these experiences for them to do it, sometimes it means, hey, we're, 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 we just got this pig or we just harvested this deer. Let's go. If we want to eat, we're going to actually butcher it. And there's not really, not that there's not another choice, but it's a, hey, a matter of fact, let's do this. It's not weird. This is what we're doing. Or we're in the middle of Kenya and here's the blood milk and, you know, it, like who wouldn't, who wouldn't do it? Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not <laughs> but he, here's the, again, I'll use my youngest daughter um, as an example for, for the power of context. We spent time in Thailand because I'm very interested in entomophagy or eating insects. Um, and I wanted, I wanted the entire family to experience and learn about eating insects in several different contexts. So we went to a place called Insects in the Backyard. It's like a, I don't know if it's got a Michelin star yet, but it should. It was this incredibly high-end restaurant in Bangkok that the, the insects were not hidden in food, they were celebrated. And I'll show you pictures. Every plate was gorgeous and you saw the insects and it was delicious and they were, he was taking the different textures and flavors of the insects and celebrating them on this dish and it was amazing. So we had a really high-end dinner experience. Then we were in uh, some of the markets in Bangkok where just everyday average people were getting their insects um, for food. And it wasn't, one of the things I, I, I like to uh, remember about that experience was that it, because some people say, oh, well, it must have been, you know, there's the market, but the people couldn't afford anything but the insects who had the insects. No, no, no. People were coming to the area of the market that had the insects with, you know, carrying 10 bags full of meat and vegetables and other things, and they got the insects too. It wasn't that that was the only thing they had access to, but they were, so we were there. And uh, we spent time with a guy who's from Italy but lives in Bangkok who had just started a insect a pasta business. It was uh -huh. a dried pasta where he's using cricket flour and he believes that um, the way to get people to start eating insects, which maybe I should have started with this, insects are incredibly nutritious, they're incredibly sustainable to raise. The input of food and water compared to the output of what you get is, you know, the ratios are amazing compared to the amount of input for something like beef cattle, right? So there's a lot of ethical and sustainable nutri nutritional reasons to consume insects. And we've been eating insects for millions of years anyhow. Um, so he believes a way to do it and to get over the sort of cultural inhibitions is to hide it in pasta as a, as a well, cricket flower. Yeah. Um, I don't 100% agree with it, but I get it. I get his point. So, and then we did one other thing. I'll tell you in a second. At, I'll tell you right now, and then I'll I'll, I'll, I'll tell the the punchline part. Then we went to a little village in the middle of nowhere called Fitzunulek, which we spent time with a weaver ant egg farmer there, oh. and his entire village. And we harvested weaver ant eggs. And then the whole village came out and we cooked all day long and made this feast out of, out of um, crickets and uh, ant eggs and several, and uh, silkworm, a bunch, of, a bunch of different things and made this big feast. So those, those were our major experiences. Now I told my youngest daughter who, who at the time was nine, uh, you gotta try this, you're gonna try this stuff, we're gonna be there. And she got on the internet and she found, <laughs> she found a place in Bangkok called the Unicorn Cafe. 
And she said, if you take me to the Unicorn Cafe, I'll eat all the insects you want me to eat. I said, okay. That, okay. So we went. Now, I did a, a very stupid thing. We went to the Unicorn Cafe first before anything else. I should have held it at the end over her head, but we went there first just because timing-wise and location, it made sense. So we went to this Unicorn Cafe, and I got to tell you, it was one of the strangest experiences I've ever had. <laughs> you walk in, it looked like unicorns threw up all over the walls. There were, like, dirty, like, stuffed unicorns hanging everywhere. You could put on unicorn outfits that were filthy, and they served terrible terrible food that everything looked like a unicorn. Everything had like an ice cream cone thing. Yeah. I mean, it was terrible. And it was like purple and glitter and everything. So we went. We went. And uh, then we go to this amazing restaurant and she wouldn't have anything. And then we went to the guy with the pasta. It was even hidden in the pasta. She took one bite. And I'm like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Then we go and spend time at this village with these incredible people. We harvested all these ant eggs. We cooked with these people all day long. She saw, she was a part of putting everything in there. She ate everything out on the table. She oh, ate all hell of yeah. And the difference was the context. She was, you know, somebody served her this weird bug on a plate. Somebody served her this pasta she knew crickets were in. Or she was a part of the entire process and that's in that sort of cultural interaction. And I mean, not touching you know, people were touching hands and were touching food and, you know, giving hugs and doing this. And it was special and powerful. And she ate everything on there without, without awesome. a second thought. Yeah. Listen, I, everyone listening knows that they could go to the description. I'll have a link to everything that you have going on. But is there anything that we should promote that people should expect coming out? You said the book. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, the book. So my book, Eat Like a Human, uh, through Little Brown uh, Spark, a great publisher, is, is, uh, is on pre-order now. You can get cool. it on Amazon, all, all the other uh, outlets. And is also, it will be hitting the shelves November 16th. So you can pre-order now. It comes out November 16th. I'm super excited about that. It's 10 years worth of work uh, in that book. That's so amazing. I'm really excited. Um, if you look on eatlikeahuman.com, which is my website, uh, any, it, there's a ton of information on there, blog, sign up, you can be on our mailing list, and we always have information coming out all the time, but we have a lot of in-person, uh, live, virtual, and downloadable classes on all of the things that, oh, cool. um, and we're always adding more, but from cheese making to butchering to fermentation, all those sorts of things are, are available there. And if you're in the area at all here on the Eastern Shore, please come visit. We're at, uh, we're at 236 Cannon Street in Chestertown. And uh, there's a lot of changes happening here, super positive, incredible changes. But we uh, right now we're baking tons of sourdough bread. We're nishtamalizing maize and making a ton of those products. Cool. And we're working on replacing all the foods people eat every day with the most nourishing forms possible. Hell yeah. Bill, you're amazing. Thank you. This has been an honor. So I really appreciate the time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey everyone, that is a wrap on episode 235 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. I'm heading back to New York from Maryland now where I'll have a couple of episodes hopefully booked. Then we're heading to Honduras on the 15th and I've already got some really cool stuff that's going to come to you from there. So this summer should be packed. I'll have a lot of content coming out. So stay tuned, like, subscribe, leave a comment, review, all that good stuff. It really, really helps Trust me that it helps. I get into the algorithms and all that and more eyes and ears get to the podcast through that. So I'd appreciate if you could do that. But for now, I'm going to sign off and I will say, please take care of each other and I will catch you very soon.